All right, so today's reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. I'm grateful to have some snow this morning. Because it was just getting a little too brown and dreary, and it was cold, but there was no fun stuff going on. It wasn't too fun driving in it, uh, but it's fun nonetheless to have it. So Christmas has come and gone for us. We've celebrated Epiphany yesterday, which is uh, God's revelation to the Gentiles with the Magi arriving um, at the main, uh, arriving to uh, greet Jesus. And now we move into this season called Ordinary Time. And Ordinary Time is one of those things where you're just like, oh, that's it? It's just Ordinary Time? Yeah, it's just Ordinary Time. Because not all of the Christian life is feasts and celebrations. A lot of the Christian life is ordinary. It's just the day in, day out things of the Christian life. And so in this season, we remember that not everything is spectacular. Not everything always is lights and brightness and joy and happiness, but there are some ordinary things about this life yet. And yet, even though, even though we're in this ordinary time, God is still with us. And that is something for us to hold on to and remember. So before we dive in, let's go ahead and pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your revealed word to us. And we thank you that we can gather together this morning and we can lift high your name, that we can praise you for for what you've done, for what you're doing, for for what you will do. And we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that he has saved us, that he has made us new, that he has provided for our so great a salvation. God, this morning as we open up your word, help it to come alive to us. Help it not just be words on a page or words on a screen or words that we hear, but help them to be words that take, take heart inside of us. And we love you, we praise you. It's in Christ's name, amen. So I say this quite a bit, but there's no such thing as a perfect church. You guys know that? Well, if you ever find a perfect church, you know what the saying is? You have to leave. If you find the perfect church, you have to leave because it's already perfect. So if you get there, you're going to ruin the whole thing. I don't remember who I heard say that for the first time, but it was one of my favorite things. So whoever gets credit for that, you know, you get the the check mark, gold star. Yeah, someone, no, someone up here. It was someone up here that I heard it from. Um, So there are no perfect churches in the world, but there's one church in the Bible that comes really close to being a perfect church. And it's this church in Thessalonica, this one that we're going to be talking about over the coming weeks. It stands at the the top of the list of all the churches throughout the New Testament. They're a church that is commended for their belief in the gospel. They're commended for their good works and labor. They're praised even as a model church. They're this type of church that every other church should aspire to be like. 
And so as we begin a new year, we're going to be learning more about this church. Take it slowly as we go through First Thessalonians. This is a letter that, that Paul writes, and it's my hope ultimately through this series that we'll be inspired towards a deeper faith in Jesus. A faith that isn't just one of these things where we can say, yeah, I have faith inside of me, but an active faith, a faith that expresses itself through good works through labor for the advancement of the gospel, and ultimately an immovable hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's where we're going to be going over the next however long it takes us to get through this letter of 1 Thessalonians. And this morning we're going to be focusing in on those first three verses, establishing some background and some context for us to be able to build upon throughout this series. And so let's start there on some background. So Thessalonica, anyone know where it is? Okay, Nathan, you don't count. It's in Greece. It's a port city in Greece. It's a modern day. It's called Thessaloniki. It's a port city uh, at the bottom of Greece. It's something that's still in existence, which is kind of cool. We're talking about a place that's still in existence today, uh, second largest city in Greece, and it's been this important cultural center for over 2,000 years. Uh, this letter that we're talking about, 1 Thessalonians, is one of the earliest epistles, if not the earliest epistle that we have in the New Testament that's written about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So we're not talking about a huge amount of time that has gone about, and we already see the gospel going forth into different communities and people being able to write letters to strengthen the churches there. It's written about a year after Paul's first visit uh, to Thessalonica. It's um, during his second missionary journey. And what sets this letter apart from most of the other letters that we have in the New Testament is this is Paul's most encouraging letter by far. Like he is just positive throughout this entire letter. And this letter is ultimately likely written in response to questions that the Thessalonians have. Either they, they had written Paul a letter or they had sent a list of questions with uh, Timothy when he was there visiting them. And this is Paul responding back to that church. And so this is a, a wonderful letter for us to dive into. But before we get into the text of 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 3, we need to rewind just a little bit. We need to go back to the book of Acts in Acts 17, one of my favorites. And Rob's already like, yes, we're going to Acts 17. It's one of my favorite chapters in scripture. And this is the start of it. So let's read verses 1 through 4 in Acts 17 is going to give us a picture of the birth of this church. When Paul and his companions had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, so three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So that three Sundays, or three Saturdays, sorry, three Saturdays that Paul is preaching in this synagogue is significant. This is Paul the rock star preacher. Like he goes and he spends three weeks in a city and has all of these people turn towards Jesus. Now, this is incredible, incredible results. And so we can be thinking, well, what was Paul preaching? 
Like, I, if, if that's what Paul is preaching and he has these kind of results, maybe I should just say the exact same thing Paul does. Maybe he's giving some, like, watered-down version of the gospel that's easy for people to grab onto. What was his version that he's preaching? Well, he's preaching from the Hebrew Scriptures. He's reasoning with the people in the synagogue, telling them about who the Messiah ultimately is. He's telling them that this Messiah, the one that you're waiting for, he's not like what you imagine him to be like. In fact, he has to suffer. He has to die. He has to rise again in order to ultimately save you. That thing that you're waiting for looks different than what you expect it to look like. And by doing this, by reasoning through the Scriptures for these three weeks, he proclaims to them that Jesus, he is the one that you've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. And this is one thing where we're, we're here, we're 2,000 years later, and we're like, yeah, that, that sounds good. That sounds great. Of course, Paul saw marvelous results. He just preached the gospel and things happened. Well, this is what Paul describes the gospel as in 1 Corinthians 1.23. He says the message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And so Paul is in this place for three weeks, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus crucified and resurrected, and the results that we expect him to have are very little. But what ultimately happens is a church is birthed. Here in Thessalonica, for whatever reason, in this short amount of time, the fruit of the gospel goes forth. And it especially does so among what it says, prominent women as well as God-fearing Greeks. Now, the God-fearing Greeks were people who would be coming to synagogue, but were more like half in and half out. They, they hadn't fully ascribed to all the things that Judaism wanted them to do for various reasons. And they were just kind of there, kind of not there. And so this message that Paul is proclaiming sits really well with them. They respond to the gospel that, that Paul is proclaiming, and they ultimately become followers of Jesus. They join the church, and then end of story, it's all happy, we're all smiley, a church is born. Okay, let's keep reading and see actually what happens next. Look at verses 5 through 10. Not always good times. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials went, uh, were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So, Paul and Silas, they preach the gospel. People respond well over these three weeks. They trust in Jesus. And then all of a sudden, there are these people who get jealous of what is happening. And that word jealous that we have translated into English, it's a little bit different. It's ultimately more like burning with zeal. 
is what these people are doing. They, they see all of these people who are in their synagogue, who were worshiping the one true God, and then all of a sudden, they're going astray in their mind. They're starting to, to follow after this Jesus. And so they're burning with zeal, saying we have to do something about this. They weren't on board with the gospel that Paul is preaching. And they definitely weren't on board with people converting to this gospel. And so ultimately, they turn into bad guys from a B-list movie. They're like, we got to go recruit some people. We got to go find the rabble-rousers, those who like ignite a mob and, and do something about this. Like, it, it's just like a plot out of a bad movie of what these guys ultimately scheme in their brain. They go out and they have this, this mob and they're looking for Paul and Silas. They're going to drag them out and like make sure that they never do this again, but they can't find Paul and Silas. Because God is protecting them and working uh, for them. They don't find Paul and Silas, but they find a guy named Jason. Jason is the one who ultimately, it looks like he invited Paul and Silas. He, he's housing them. He's providing for their needs while they're there. They find some other uh, believers as well, and they drag them before Roman officials. And while they're before Roman officials, they, they accuse Jason of one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture, of bringing those who turn the world upside down here as well. Like, man, I really want it to be said of me that I'm someone who turns the world upside down for Jesus. And that's what these people are describing, Paul and Silas. These men who have turned the world upside down, who have caused trouble everywhere. Jason has brought them right here in our community, and they're causing all sorts of trouble. They ultimately say that, that what they're doing, what Paul and Silas are doing, what Jason is doing by, by welcoming these men in is they're ultimately committing treason against Caesar. Saying that this gospel of Jesus, declaring that he is Lord, that he is king, is ultimately defying the law of Caesar. It's defying the lordship of Caesar. And that's what ultimately ignites the whole crowd and the officials to, to be really, really frustrated at that point. And so with Jason there, uh, they ultimately make him pay a substantial fine, the others who are with him, and, and they let him go. And in this moment, we find out that there's a literal cost to following Jesus. And here, we have three weeks of a church being born. Just three weeks. They're getting chastised and persecuted. And what we would maybe expect to happen next is for everyone to scatter. For them to maybe renounce the, this new faith that they have, to go the opposite way. But that's ultimately not what happens. The birth of this church is incredible because the, the church in Thessalonica is a church that thrives against all odds. Even though everything is positioned against them, they thrive. Everyone in their community doesn't like that they exist. They don't like that they're following Jesus. The founder of their church has to leave after only three weeks. Everything is against this church. They know that it may cost them dearly to follow Jesus because they've seen what has happened to Jason and the other ones. And yet, and yet... Those who follow Jesus, those who responded to the gospel, they remain faithful. Praise God. Praise God. 
These are the type of people, as we read through this story, as we read through, through all of this, these are the type of people who should inspire us to passionately pursue Jesus. They're the type of people that we should look at and say, I want to be like them. And ultimately, this is how Paul describes them in 1 Thessalonians 1. He describes them as this church who has faith amid suffering, that they're ultimately a model for how all the churches should go. And we'll see that a bit more next week as we dive into the rest of 1 Thessalonians 1. But they're a model church. It's who we should all strive to be after. It's ultimately what we should look at and say, what is different about this church and how can it affect us? And so let's go ahead and dive in. Let's begin to uncover a bit more about this model church in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians 1. Does Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. The two great verses here. Let's start in that that first verse. First and foremost, this is a church that has found its identity in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what sets apart this church at the very beginning. They are a church that has found its identity in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been adopted by the Father. They've been cleansed by the Son, and though not explicitly mentioned here, they've been made new through the Spirit at work in Him. This is a a church that is rooted and founded in the revelation of the triune God. They're a church that is in God. And this phrasing that we have here, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is actually really unique for Paul. It's not something that he does in other letters. Paul normally says, in Christ. And so uh, I think it's actually quite significant that Paul is saying, in the Lord Jesus Christ and in God the Father, to a church, a mostly Gentile church, who has all of their Jewish community turned against them. They need to know that they're both in Christ and in the Father. They need to know both of that because everyone around them in their community says, no, you're not. No, you're not. You don't, you don't know the Father. You don't know God. You're proclaiming Jesus, but you don't know. But Paul says, you do know. You are in the Father. You are in the Son. And by doing this, by positioning these two names, these two titles, these two persons so closely together, what we get here in 1 Thessalonians 1 is a really high view of Jesus. From the very beginning, one of the earliest epistles written, we have this really high view of Jesus, of the Father and the Son being positioned in closest proximity to one another theologically. And more than that, we also have some fun theology behind it. Um, So you'll just have to bear with me for a, a couple of minutes, and we'll get nerdy about language just for a moment. But then we'll get back. So if you don't like language, just 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 hold on. We'll get to some more stuff where you'll hear more language from me. So the Greek word for for Lord, which is that title that that Paul gives to Jesus Christ, it's the same one used throughout the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's used all throughout the Septuagint for the Tetragrammaton. You're like, huh? That is uh, the four-letter name for God. 
that's found throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures. So what we would say Yahweh or what some other people would uh, wrongly say is Jehovah, uh, this is who is Lord. It is God himself that is Lord. And, and what Paul does here is he uses that same title for Jesus. He's writing this in Greek. He's using the, the, the scriptures that he's, he's been using. And what Paul does is he says that Jesus is Lord with that same word, kurios, that is used for Yahweh throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew scriptures. He uses the word Christ, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. And what Paul does here, and it's, it's nerdy, but it's so cool, is Paul, as he's writing here, he's placing God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ so closely together that you can't help but say, these two are God. They're both Lord, they're both God, they're both Trinitarian. It's Paul doing some wonderful theology here where he puts these two in closest relationship together, puts this this church rooted in the Father and the Son. He's saying that this is something that everyone else is missing, but you have gotten. You are in God the Father, you are in God the Son. Proclaiming to this church who's having everyone persecuting them, you are situated correctly. You have chosen the right path. Everyone else is getting it wrong, but you have put your faith in the right way. And perhaps this, this understanding by this church in Thessalonica, perhaps them understanding God the Father and God the Son working together to affect their salvation, maybe that's what makes them unique among all the other churches. Because all we know is that Paul only uses this language here in 1 Thessalonians, and then we only have 1 Thessalonians as the only fully positive letter throughout Scripture. And we're just like, okay, there's something different about this church, and theologically, they understand some things. And so that's the, the nerdy part for a moment. So Paul moves from this theologically rich greeting so kind of this beautiful proclamation of his affinity for these particular people. Verse 2 is just this, this wonderful line. And uh, if you like writing or underlining in your Bible, um, you can underline always for all continually. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now think about all the churches that Paul deals with. He never gives thanks for all of you in all circumstances at all times. Like some of those people are thorns in Paul's side, but not this church. Not this church. This is a, a church that brings great joy to Paul. He's very pleased with them. He's always giving thanks for all, continually mentioning them in his prayers. And I think this is one of the things that the Lord does in our life. He, he brings about the, these people who are just like this, this sweet aroma to us. Where we can just be like, even if everything else is bad, even if all of these other people are pricking me, even if everything is not going well, there are these people over here where I can always give thanks for all the time. I think God does that as a sweet grace towards us. Now, most of Paul's churches are not like the church in Thessalonica. 
I want you to look at Galatians 1.6, and we'll put that on the screen. Uh, this is a, an introduction, an introductory greeting that Paul gives to the church in Galatia, which is written at a very similar time to the First Thessalonians. It's either written right before First Thessalonians or right after First Thessalonians. And so we know Paul just doesn't get old and curmudgeonly at some point and starts talking differently. These are written at about the same time. And this is what he says in Galatians 1.6. I am astonished. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Right after that, he says, not that there is a different gospel. He also calls them foolish Galatians, which is one of my favorite things throughout Scripture. So we know that, that Paul, around this same time, can have a very different type of greeting to the church depending on how they're ultimately doing. This church that we're talking about, we'll put 1 Thessalonians uh, 1 and 2 back up on the screen. Uh, it isn't prone to error like the Galatian church. It isn't prone to disorderly worship like the Corinthian church. It isn't full of gross sin like the Corinthian church. It doesn't have feuding congregants like the church in Philippi. This church in Thessalonica is different. They're this sort of breath of fresh air because they have Christ as their firm foundation. And nothing is taking them off course. Nothing is shaking them away from that firm foundation that they have in Jesus. As North Country Alliance Church, we should seek to be a church like the church in Thessalonica. We should be a church that is focused on Christ. A church that's not given to theological error, not given to sin, not given to disunity, not given to to feuding. We should be a church like the Thessalonican church. We should be a people who have been transformed by Jesus. And I think in some ways, as I think about us as a church, as a congregation, I think there's some evidence that we have been transformed by Jesus. I think about the past 10 years of our church history, and there there have been ups and downs in that church history, but I think what that has revealed is that Christ is our foundation. Because it would have been easy to shutter the doors. It would have been easy to say, this is too hard. We can't go through this. We can't come out the other side. But instead, God continued to move. God continued to do a work. I think we've honored God with our finances really well. I think we've shown that we support the furthering of the Great Commission both locally and throughout the whole world. We're a church that faithfully gives. We're a church with Jesus as our foundation. But I think there's still some evidence of the old nature in us. I think there's still some of those things where if we were getting a letter from Paul, like Paul would name some things about us. Let me just talk about those for a moment. I think we can struggle with warmly welcoming and connecting with those we don't know well. I think we have a hard time just gravitating towards the people that we know and not throwing our arms wide open to the people that may be different than us. People that may have different interests, that may not think like us. I think we have a hard time with that. I think we have a hard time with, with changing direction when, when it isn't our preference. I think we can root our feet in the ground. And, and I want you to know that these aren't just me getting up here to bash you guys. These are things that I've heard from other leaders who are dear to this congregation as well. 
It's not just things that, that, that I'm observing. It's things that other people have said to me as well. And it's hard to talk about these things. When I wrote these things in my notes last week as I was preparing, I'm like, I may cut that at one point. And then this morning, as I was looking over my notes again, I said, I'd really rather cut that and not talk about the difficult bits. But we have to talk about those things. We have to talk about the ways in which God has not fully transformed us yet. And anytime we just say that everything is, is great and pie in the sky and the sun is shining, and well, it's not, but, but the snow is falling and it, it's beautiful. Anytime we only focus on that and never talk about the, the stuff that we don't really want to talk about, we, we've missed allowing God to do a work in us. So the reason that I talk about it, and I hope you're not offended by me doing so, but the reason I highlight them is so that we can invite the Spirit to do a work in us. As we're looking at this Thessalonian church who, who Paul praises, who Paul talks so well about, and, and I think that should inspire something in us, saying, I want to be a church like that. I want to be a church that, that's described by, by those who are in leadership of, I always give thanks for all of them, and they're continually in my prayers, not laboring in prayer. God, will you please save these wretched people? But God, thank you for these people. And I'll say this, 99 days out of 100, 95 days out of 100, you guys are there. Thankful for you all. And I'll take lightly that this is uh, the beginning of my, my third year of ministry here. I, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that God has put this as our congregation, that he situated us here uh, among a people who, who need to know him. I'm thankful. Let's not get to this place where we're just so thankful for what God has done that we miss what God still wants to do. There's still work that he has in us and for us. We should be people who have been so moved by God, so touched by the gospel of Jesus, that those who encounter us are blown away. We're just like, there's something different about these people. They're crazy and they're weird. And for some reason, some of them are from Texas. And I don't know that we, when we encounter people, people should be blown away by seeing Jesus in us. We don't do this out of pride, right? That, that's not the goal. That's not the reason that we, we hope, man, I hope someone sees me and they just compliment me and they talk good about me. No. That's not why we do it. It's not out of this selfish pride. Instead, it's out of this reverence for God. Out of this desire to see our God's name proclaimed throughout every tongue, throughout every home, throughout every person in the North Country. That's why we do it. That's why we seek to be a church like this. It's for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. It's to bring praise to our God who has saved us and loved us. We shouldn't be the frozen chosen up in the North Country. It's not who we should be. We shouldn't be the frozen chosen who, yep, they're saved, but I don't know. Are they? We should be salt and light that melts away the cold, snowy winter and ushers in the beauty of rebirth that comes with spring. Not frozen chosen. Salt and light.
And what does salt and light do? Melts away the ice, melts away the snow, melts away the cold hearts. That is what God has called us to be. And this is a high calling, right? Like as we read through this and we see this church in Thessalonica, we can be like, yes, that's great, but how? Like how do we get there? And I think 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, I think it gives us some needed direction. This is, again, Paul's introduction, but it's so, so rich. He says, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is still building up the church here, but in doing so, he reveals to us what it is about them that is so commendable. What it is about them that is so worth imitating. And it's really threefold. You can, you can underline it. You can highlight it. Work produced by faith. Labor prompted by love. Endurance inspired by hope. And then there's just this beautiful preposition that brings all of them together. All three of those things in or of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three things. Work produced by faith labor prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. All of them flowing out of that identity, out of the gospel proclamation, all of them flowing out of what Jesus has done. And so let's talk about each of those a bit more. The first one is work produced by faith. Now work is the outflow of of faith. It is holy living in response to the gospel. A faith that does not produce works is a dead faith and it is not saving faith. That's not my opinion, that's what James says. Faith without works is dead. A life that does not exhibit good works in response to the gospel of Jesus is a life that is not fully surrendered to Jesus. It's a life that is not in Christ. It's a life that has not been made new by the Spirit working in them. Good works flow from salvation. As one commentator put it, and I really love this, faith is busy. Faith is busy. Yes, salvation is God's work alone. It is him accomplishing salvation, but the evidence of our salvation, and this is throughout the entire New Testament, the evidence for our salvation is good works. It's the old nature being replaced with the new. It's the fruit of the Spirit replacing the fruit of the flesh. Good works flow from belief and faith in the gospel of Jesus. There's this wonderful quote by Dallas Willard, who is this, this expert in spiritual formation. And, and he says this, this line right here that I just love, that I wish I could say so eloquently as he does, grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. I think sometimes we can be so scared that we're trying to earn our salvation that we forget that God has called us to do good works. We can never earn our salvation. It is God's work alone through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is how we are saved. But how we know we are saved is by responding to that message well. 
by placing ourselves in Christ, by surrendering to him, by dying to self, taking up our cross daily and following after Jesus, by proclaiming his lordship and allowing that to flow into our everyday lives. People should be able to see that we've been transformed by the gospel. People should be able to see by how we're living that we're truly in Christ. There was this question that was popular a decade plus ago. It's this question, if you were on trial for your faith, would there be enough evidence to convict you? What's your answer to that? If you were on trial for your faith, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, they go to church, okay? They posted some Facebook posts every once in a while, okay? But has Jesus transformed your heart? Has the old passed away? Has the new come? Has your former way of living been replaced by living for God? That's what Paul commends about this church. It's their, their good works produced by faith. That faith has done something in them. There is enough evidence to convict you for the Thessalonian church. Yes. Yes, there is enough evidence. They've rightly responded to the gospel of Jesus and they're working at holy living. They're working at seeing God transform all of them so much so that it's evident to everyone around them. So evident that Paul praises how they live. All right, the second thing that Paul highlights, labor prompted by love. We just talked about work, and now he's talking about, about labor. What, what is it that is, that is labor? Labor is that which is done for the advancement of the gospel. Paul uses this, this same language to describe his missionary work elsewhere throughout the New Testament. And, and that word labor that's translated here is a bit weightier than that. It's a bit weightier than, than just work or, or, or something that you do. It's intense, toilsome work. Hard work, backbreaking work. It's difficult work. And we got to think about it in the, seated in the context of who the Thessalonian church is. What is their, their labor going to look like? We got to remember that this is a church that is born amid persecution. And so, yeah, all of their labor is going to be toilsome. All of their labor is going to be difficult because they're, they're not dealing with good soil around them. They're dealing with hard, difficult soil that's going to take a lot of cultivating, which is hard, toilsome work in order for the gospel to take root in the hearts of the hearers around them. This church is born amid persecution. It's born amid difficulty. But that doesn't stop them. It doesn't stop them for laboring for the gospel, even though there's a high cost for doing so even though it's really difficult for them to do it. They're not hiding away. They're not trying to avoid persecution. They're not trying to say, well, you know, if we just stay over here and we mind our business, well, at least we have us. And maybe if we just keep quiet, everything will be okay. That's not what this church is doing. They're laboring for the advancement of the gospel. Why? Why would they, they risk so much? They've seen what happened to Jason 
They saw that, that Paul and Silas had to, to leave quickly out of town to, so that they wouldn't get in more trouble. Why would they do this? They've experienced the love of God. They've experienced the grace of Jesus. They've experienced His mercy in such a way that has utterly transformed them. And if God could do that for them, God could transform their hearts. He could forgive their sin. And they know their sin. They know what they've been through. If God could forgive them, how could they not proclaim that good news to others? Remember, these are people who had been sitting in the synagogue for so long as the outsiders, God-fearing Greeks. They're kind of in, they're kind of out, and yet they've experienced the fullness of the grace of God. They've experienced the love of the Messiah. They've experienced being grafted in to this God who loves them and cares for them and gives gives his life for them. Why would they not proclaim that to everyone else, even if it's a high cost? Wasn't it a high cost for their salvation? That's what they get. The love of God has been so wonderful, so extravagant, so magnanimous to them that they subject themselves to hardship so that others can experience that love for themselves. That should be us. Right? It should be us. People who so understand what Jesus has done that we're willing to proclaim his goodness to everyone around us, even if it comes with a high cost. Even if it means getting chastised at work. Even if it means we get fired from our jobs. Even if it means that we're looked at like the crazy person on our street. Why wouldn't we do it? Christ in his great love has redeemed us. That's the story. He has redeemed us. Because of that, we can confidently say, as the psalmist does in Psalm 18, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Nothing. Though they kill the body, they cannot kill the spirit. Number three, endurance inspired by hope. Endurance in trusting Christ alone in doing good works and proclaiming the gospel to others through all the, the hardships, through all the difficulties is possible for this church only through an eternal lens. It's only possible for them through the hope that they have in Jesus. And here's what the scholarly Reverend Leon Morris notes about this portion of the text. He says, hope in a Christian context always have an, has an air of certainty about it. It's a confident expectation. It's not the unfounded optimism we often mean by the word. More particularly, the Christian hope is directed towards the second advent. They have hope that Jesus will come again. These Christians who have experienced great pain, who've gone through trials, They endure because they have a sure and steady hope that Jesus will return and will rule entire the, rule over the entire world. They have that as their firm hope. They know that this world, even though it's currently broken, even though it's set against them, even though it doesn't like them, that this world will be made new. 
that all those who are in Christ will reign with him for all eternity. That God will be there and we will be there and we'll be seeing him face to face. This is what this church understands and it's what fuels everything about them. The Christian hope does not rest on a political movement. It doesn't. The, the Christian hope doesn't rest on hoping things get better by our effort. It doesn't. The Christian hope rests upon the triumphant Jesus alone. That's it. Nothing else. It rests upon Jesus alone. As Christians who, who are in Christ, we should have this sure and steady hope about us. That though we look at the world, though it's difficult, though it doesn't go the way we want it to go, we know that Jesus is Lord, that He is coming back, and that He will make all things new. We should be people that have that hope. We should be a church that aspires to have an immovable hope in Jesus alone, even when, especially when things are tumultuous. These are the things that, that Paul highlights for this church in Thessalonica. Knowing these things, I, I want to wrap up with a simple question for us. What do we want to be known for as a church? What do we want to be known for as a church? If we went around Plattsburgh and we asked people, hey, who do you say North Country Alliance Church is? And most of them would say, huh? I've never heard of that church. That's the sad reality. Like when I talk to people and they're like, oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. What church? North Country Alliance. Where is that? Oh, it's the old base chapel. Like, oh, okay. I know, I know where that is now. What do we want to be known for as a church? Do we simply want to be known as the church that meets in the base chapel? Do we want to be known as a church that's seen as insular towards outsiders? Do we want to be known as a church that is full of difficult people? I hope not. I hope that's not what we aspire to. I hope that's not what we are satisfied with. Wouldn't it be great If like the Thessalonian church, we were known for our work produced by faith, our labor prompted by love, and our endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be great if that's what we were known as? That's what's possible. But it's only possible if we'll fully surrender. Fully surrender to the good news of Jesus, allowing him to have his way in us. But here's the really good news. It's not impossible. And this is where we can be really thankful for God's word. Because as we're looking at this Thessalonian church, we can say, if God did it for them, he can do it for us. If this is a a church that's praiseworthy there, there can be a church that's praiseworthy here. We can be a church that has been fully transformed by Jesus. May we be a church that has been fully transformed. May the God who worked a mighty work in the church of Thessalonica do a mighty work in us. Amen?
Over the coming weeks, we're going to keep diving into this letter to the Thessalonian church. As we do that, let's invite the Spirit. Let's invite the Spirit to, to search our collective hearts, to highlight those bits that we don't want Him to highlight. Those things that we, we know were there, but we would rather not deal with. Let's invite the Spirit to do a mighty work in us. Amen? Let's stand together and pray. Now we ask for you to have your way. we give you all control. We surrender. Transform us from the inside out. Help us to be a people who have so experienced the love of Jesus. People who have so experienced your grace and your mercy. people who are rooted in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's do be a people who are so in you that it just flows out of us. Good works and labor for gospel advancement and sure and steady hope would be the type of people that we are, the type of church that we are. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that that you still speak to us today. Thank you that your spirit is still moving. And help us to come before you now as we, we enter into that time of our service where we begin to approach your table. Let us approach you with hearts that are fully surrendered. In Christ's name we pray.